0: Um, I'm Adam Ramsey, I'm Special Correspondent at Open Democracy, which is one of the partners in organising this event, and um, it was back in January when Tom Nairn died, and um, my colleague Anthony Barnett is staying with me, that we first came up with the idea for this conference, and we've got a wonderful panel coming up for you you in a moment. But first, I'm going to introduce Professor Will Storer from Princeton, who was a good friend of Tom Nairn, um, and uh, is going to talk about the man who brought us all here
1: Thank you. Thank you. Before I begin, I think we should take a moment to salute not just Tom Nairn, but the people who have put this extraordinary gathering together within a few months. To Anthony Barnett and the organizers, this is an intellectual coup d'etat that starts a new moment in political history, and we want to salute them for their extraordinary achievement. Years ago, in a Scottish current affairs program, one of the panellists, foolishly refer to themselves as intellectual, which prompted the journalist Julie Davidson to write, there are only four intellectuals in Scotland, and they're all called Tom Nairn. (laughs) It is good to remember who those four intellectuals were at the start of this conference, because we need all four today. The first three Nairns are well known. First, there is the European Nairn. I did a politics degree at Edinburgh in the 70s, and in four years we were assigned not one contemporary reading on Scotland, apart from a study of funeral rites in the Outer Hebrides. Imagine then the impact of reading The Breakup of Britain when it was first published in 1977. Suddenly, in essay after essay, the tragedy, the tragic comedy of this never, never land called Scotland, missing from modernity, was performed before our eyes in the language of a poet and the logic of a philosopher. Scotland, seen not in the twilight of the Ukrainian British state, but under the dazzling sun of European culture. Antonio Gramsci, Walter Benjamin, and Paul Cleese, angel of history. Here was Enoch Paulism skewered, little England stripped of its imperial pyjamas, and the rotting hulk of Britannia holed below history's waterline and destined for the breaker's yard. And what of Scotland? Seen now as a seaworthy ship of state, thanks to Nairn's conversations with Stephen Maxwell on Scottish Nationalism. Nairn was a European thinker like no other. The artist turned student of aesthetics turned Gramscian from his time in Pisa. He gave my generation, the home rule generation, a new republican consciousness. We were European citizens turning the Janus faces of nationalism towards a more muscular constitutionalism. After Brexit, we need that thinker back among us today. (laughs) Second, there is the revolutionary, whose solidarity with the students of May 1968 cost Nairn his career, and a lifetime of precarious employment on the margins of the academy and media. In discussing the breakup of Britain, let's not lose sight of Nairn's analysis of why May 1968 failed and its lessons for that other moment of revolutionary practice which came, which came as if from nowhere, Scotland's Summer of Democracy in 2000 in 14, when in Nairn's words, reality came close to the dream. We think of Nairn as a theorist, but in fact his passion was practice, or rather the the dialectic between the two. How do I know? Well this revolutionary wanted to wring my neck, where many comrades could sink the Titanic with their leaden prose. Nairn had a wit that lifted Scotland off the iceberg of Eucania with just one joke. We all know his now legendary Scottish paraphrase of the French revolutionary slogan that humanity would be free when the last king was strangled in the guts of the last priest. You, you will appreciate, then, the conference organizer's sense of humour, in inviting me, a Kirk minister, to chair the breakout session on the monarchy. (laughs) Tom would have enjoyed this irony. The first time I got a call from him, that familiar gravelly basso profundo voice said, Chief officer of the strangling classes here. (laughs) My unlikely friendship with this revolutionary tells us something very important about him. Like all true satirists, he was a deeply humane and caring man. His anger was directed not against individuals, but against institutions like the British state he rebelled against all his life. There was not a, a sectarian bone in Tom Nairn's body. This is the intellectual we salute today. A revolutionary, yes, but a revolutionary without contempt. If we are remembering that, near, this is not a day for personal contempt, but for political analysis. Then there is the anthropologist. I went to visit Tom when he was a professor of global studies in Melbourne, developing his concept of nationality politics under the conditions of globality. Everyone is now scurrying away from the once fashionable globalisation thesis. But Nairn's thesis of the global was never about the triumph of neoliberalism. Nairn, the social scientist, was deeply read in prehistory and saw in the earliest human cultures the enduring structures of human sociability that made a myriad small nations the world's only viable future this is not a day for despair going global with this Nairn means we have the long durée of history on our side but what about the fourth Nairn the one missing from almost every account of his life as Adam said I first met the forgotten Nairn in this very assembly room right there at the back of the hall Everyone writes about the private man of independent mind whose only venture into politics is said to be his involvement in the ill-fated Scottish Labour Party. Not so. Tom Nairn was in this Assembly Room in 1980 at the second annual meeting of the campaign for a Scottish Assembly that had risen Phoenix-like from the ashes of the 1979 referendum. This was Tom, this, here, right now, this event, this was Tom's natural political milieu, building broad cross party alliances in a broad movement for democratic renewal. Right through those decades, Nairn was an active participant in the civic movement for a Scottish Parliament, a stalwart of common cause with Neil Asheson and Joyce Macmillan. In countless campaign events, Tom was there, never at the front, always keeping us honest. This is the fourth Tom Nairn, the unknown citizen who marched with the movement every step of the way to the Scottish Parliament. Those first three intellectuals, the European, the revolutionary, the anthropologist, they were and are uniquely Nairn. But Nairn, the unknown citizen, he is all of us. It turns out we're all called Tom Nairn, so let's get on with it.
0: Thank you, Will, and as you can see from our, our opening panel, we've got a wonderful lineup of speakers, and I'm going to use as little time as possible to introduce them, so you can get as much of them as you can. So can we start with Caroline Lucas, the UK's first Green MP, who's come all the way up from the south coast of England, from Wrighton Pavilion. Okay.
2: Thank you Adam, thank you all for the huge honour to be sharing this really important day with you. I'd like to add my congratulations to the organisers for such a fitting tribute to the extraordinary Tom Nairn. While his death earlier this year was widely acknowledged in Scotland with Gordon Brown and Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond all sharing their fulsome tributes about the significant influence he had on, on their thinking. I was struck that it barely registered among English political thinkers. And that's a particular shame, I think, because much of Nairn's analysis was actually about my homeland and its seemingly permanent state of political crisis. Perhaps it reflects the fact that few of England's political elite are actually willing to accept that they are just English, let alone to contemplate the logic of Nairn's argument that the break-up of Britain, the mutual liberation from the crumbling political construct which he famously called Eucania, might just be good for all of us. But just as Tom Nairn spent a lot of his time thinking about England, I hope you'll forgive me if I spend most of my time today looking at this issue through the lens of England and the English, particularly since we have such eloquent speakers from Scotland and Wales here on the panel beside me. The title we've been given is how did we get here and I will certainly try to answer that but I also want to look forward to how we get out of here which is probably more important. But where is here in the first place? What is the nature of the democratic crisis that we face? Well seen in one way I think the problem is our political institutions. Clearly the archaic and undemocratic first past the post voting system an over-centralised governance system, the unelected Lords, the populist abuse of sovereignty, the vast networks of patronage, the stuffy and outdated conventions, public school atmosphere—the whole damn lot of it. <laughs> So yes, partly the problem is our political institutions, but seen in another way, it is also about nationalisms and identity, and specifically about how England in particular has struggled to find its way in the modern world, how we cling to delusions of imperial grandeur, pretend that we are so much more than just English, and the devastating consequences of that are all around us. It was English exceptionalism that drove Brexit, for example. In one way, that referendum campaign seems a lifetime ago, although I'm sure you share with me the slight horror of seeing David Cameron slouch back to Westminster in the way that he has over the last few days. But we have gone through so much more since that referendum, and if anything, I would say that the alienation and the polarisation are even greater today than they were in 2016. But the truth was clear even then, that Brexit was the result of division and would make those divisions worse. It has deepened the democratic crisis within the United Kingdom. The fact that England and Wales voted to leave and Scotland and Northern Ireland to stay has put incredible strain on the myth that the United Kingdom is an equal partnership of four nations. Government in London decided what form Brexit would take without any reference at all to the elected governments in Edinburgh or Belfast or indeed in Cardiff. And unsurprisingly, as a result, support for the reunification of Ireland has grown the pressure for a second referendum in Scotland remains strong. In Wales, a new sense of national identity is on the rise. I think it is very true to say that the future of the United Kingdom is now in doubt. Yet we left the EU, I would argue, primarily because of what happened in England. Outside of the capital, every single English region voted for Brexit. And it's no disrespect to Wales, I hope, which voted by a majority of only 80,000 I to say that it was an English vote that drove Brexit. And in the month following 2016, I, I, I travelled to as many leave voting places in England as I could to hear from people firsthand and face-to-face why it is that they had voted for Brexit. And sometimes that was a difficult process. And one reason that came up again and again was that those who benefited benefit economically from the EU membership and from the UK becoming a more open and diverse society, didn't do anything like enough to share those gains fairly, and often sneered at those with a more traditional view of England. But those conversations were also refreshing and reassuring, because there was so much more that we agreed on than held us apart. Many people were angry, of course they were, but if you took the time to go and pay them the courtesy of listening, then common ground could emerge. And one theme continually did emerge through that whole process which my small team filmed and we, we presented it afterwards as a, as a project called Dear Leavers but one theme that came up again and again was about people's sense of pride in the places where they lived but simultaneously uh, their feelings of powerlessness. I was told countless times that London, the power that was held there, was so far away that it might have been on another planet. People felt unheard and ignored and this was much more than an economic complaint. However, corrosive this country's grotesque inequalities of wealth and opportunity undoubtedly are, it was also about culture and identity. Many resented how some expressions of Englishness were allowed while others were not. It was acceptable to love the English countryside, English humour, English music, English literature, and to see those aspects of English as welcoming and humane, full of energy and creativity. But the moment Englishness took a political form, it apparently turned into the opposite, Even mild forms of patriotism were frowned on. The English flag was acceptable, fluttering from a church tower in a picturesque village, but was instantly interpreted as a form of racism if hanging from someone's window on an estate. Yet Englishness should not be something to be scared of, or indeed suppressed within the notion of Britain, as if that would somehow contain it safely. I think Brexit showed us the limits to that particular strategy. I think instead we need to recognise that many people who see themselves primarily as English feel that they are without a voice, including a political voice. There are no institutions that represent England equivalent to those in the three other countries in the UK. Nothing to give political expression, to our complex and rich and sometimes raucous reality, or where differences can be expressed and perhaps resolved. So the so-called English problem is not only one of culture and identity, it is also profoundly one of democracy. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of England do we want now and in the future, either within the United Kingdom or as an independent state, a reborn kingdom of England? Will it be a smaller, diminished version of what we have now? Will imperial delusions and exceptionalism continue to shape our sense of self? Will it be inward-looking and resentful of lost glories? Or could it, could it just become a genuine democracy, confident, outward-looking, inclusive, and recognising that our future necessarily involves being part of Europe. These questions, I think, have taken on an even greater urgency, as xenophobic nationalism continues its rise across Europe, from the success of the Sweden Democrats and True Finns, to the growth of the far-right in France, Italy and Hungary. At the same time, propelled by the outcome of the Brexit referendum and the 2019 general election, in the UK, the populist right strengthens its grip on an increasingly extreme and out-of-touch conservative party. If a progressive alternative to this national populist agenda is to be successful, I think it needs to do more than offer bolder, more ambitious policies, vital though those are. It needs to unify rather than divide and to offer hope rather than despair. And one of the most effective ways of doing that, I think, is by telling more compelling stories about who we are and who we can be. So my answer to the question of how do we get out of the current democratic crisis isn't only about constitutional answers. It's not only about PR or an elected House of Lords or a written constitution. It's about telling more compelling stories about who we English are so that we might finally be more comfortable in our own skin, less intent on subduing our neighbours, whether they be within the UK or across the empire. Because I would wager that once we, English, do finally settle with our own identity, we might just discover we are far more progressive than we were ever led to believe. Because right now, Englishness has been hijacked by right. The dominant version of our national story solely serves their interests. The only people who dare speak Englishness are cheerleaders of isolationism and imperial nostalgia. But there are other stories equally compelling about who we are, about the English people's radical inclusivity, their ancient commitment to the natural world, their long struggle for rights for all. Stories that put the chartists and the diggers in their rightful place alongside Nelson and Churchill. Stories that draw inspiration from the agreement of the people, from Tom Paine, from Blake, Shelley, William Morris and the suffragettes. That draw on medieval writers and romantic poets who emphasise the sanctity of the environment, that recognise and celebrate England's ancient multicultural heritage. And so, if I could just end with one tiny shame's plug, uh, my forthcoming book, Another England, <laughs> sets out to tell those stories. Because I genuinely believe rediscovering those stories of an England at ease with itself and with our past, forward-looking, open, more equal, diverse, and multi-ethnic, and identifying the policies that could actually help to realise those visions and stories, I believe that project has become a political project every bit as urgent and important as levelling up or investing in infrastructure. Because a country without a coherent story about who and what it is can never thrive and prosper, it can't extract itself from its own democratic crisis, and it certainly can't rise to the existential threats of our time, the climate and nature emergencies. As the writer Ben Okri puts it, nations and peoples are largely the stories they feed themselves. If they tell themselves stories that are lies, they will suffer the future consequences of those lies. If they tell themselves stories that face certain truths, they will free their histories for future flowerings. So finding and telling those stories that speak to the truth of England's past and present and inspire us to imagine and pursue new and better futures might just turn out to be one of the most transformative acts that we can undertake and indeed one of the greatest contributions to a healthy democracy right across all of these aisles. I understand why many Scots have run out of patience with the English you are constructing your own modern narrative, why on earth should you need to concern yourself with England's need for one? Well, I would just perhaps leave you with the answer that perhaps there has to be a collaborative effort among all of us, if any of us, is to succeed.
0: So, um, next we have another, I think, incomparable MP, my personal favourite Labour MP, um, I uh, don't like to indulge in alternative histories but I do occasionally wonder what would have happened if the left had got behind Clive's leadership bit in the Labour Party in 2020 and whether we wouldn't be looking at the future Prime Minister with a very different story right now but alas, that didn't happen um, Clive Lewis is the MP for Norwich South and I'm going to... On you go <laughs> <laughs>
3: Thank you <clears throat> uh, Thank you for that introduction as well, Adam. Uh, I imagine that alternative history is one uh, my wife wouldn't like, but nonetheless, uh, it is an interesting uh, idea. Uh, it's a huge honour to be here today to speak at this uh, intellectual gathering. I don't consider myself an intellectual. I like to hang out with them, though, um, and I hope some of their ideas rub off on me, um, Before I start, I almost didn't make it. I had a a phone call from um, elements in my party that said, uh, do you really want to come to Scotland and and make this beach? And I had to to explain that you do realise there's a question mark at the end of the the title of the the conference, uh, the breakup of Britain, question mark, which I think just about allowed me to come up. Um, It's funny because Caroline, Caroline was telling me in the green room about what she was going to say. She said, oh, it's about stories. And I was like, well, that's what I'm going to talk about as well. So, I mean, minds think alike or minds think alike. I think it's quite interesting that we both come to uh, a similar conclusion in terms of what we want to talk about here today. My opening remarks are mainly about stories, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell each other, and the stories the powerful and the political class tell the rest of us. But it's that last one that's of particular interest to me. Why? Well, because to understand the British democratic crisis, the title of this morning's session, we need to understand both what the crisis is, which I'll come on to at the end, but also how we got here in the first place. We know those who control the past control the present. Therefore, the stories we tell ourselves about our past will determine the parameters of what today is considered politically possible and what's ruled out. And it partly explains, for example, why England can have Brexit, but Scotland can't have independence. It's clearly very powerful. Why else do you think the pharagist rights of this country, the intellectual inheritors of Enoch Power and I'll come back on to him in a bit, are so intent on waging and winning their history wars? It's because they understand that maintaining the illusional story of what Britain was is integral to the illusion of what Britain is, and therefore the maintenance of their political and economic hegemony. So my journey to this awakening came not after I read Tom then, um, but after I had switched on BBC News earlier in the year to see the Trevelyan family, uh, their a family of British aristocrats apologising and paying reparations to the Caribbean island of Grenada. They were doing so for their family's part in the enslavement of thousands of Africans, including some of my own ancestors, it transpires, on my father's side. And it led to a podcast, Heirs of Enslavement, available on all good podcasting platforms, I'm doing my plug as well, Uh, that charts a story of Britain's transatlantic chattel slave trade and plantations all the way through to today, and the continued exploitation of the same people by the same banks, financial institutions, that made their money from that brutal exploitation in the first place. Now, the BBC, former BBC journalist, Lord Trevelyan, uh, my co-presenter on the podcast, told me something which stuck in my head because it's redolent of wider truth, I think. She explained how her family had told itself for generations that they were part of the good and the great of British history. Irish potato famine aside, of course. Um, They were renowned historians, civil service reformers, and even Labour Party secretaries of state. But the realisation they had enriched themselves through the longest most brutal and exploitative crimes against humanity ever perpetrated. Well, from what I could discern, it was like being woken up by a bucket of cold slops. It was a shock to the system. But it opened eyes, including my own. It allowed me to see that there had been a deliberate forgetting of our history, of our imperial story. Whether the usual sanitised story of slavery that focuses on abolition to the assertion that empire really wasn't that big a deal. And if it was, well, it brought the rule of law to the world. A deliberate forgetting. But why? Well, three key reasons. One, to cover up a crime scene that spanned the globe and hundreds of years. Two, to completely disconnect those crimes and the wealth and power they generated and how it ended up in the hands of the wealthy, the corporations, and the financial institutions. In other words, the 1%. And three, to enable the construction of a new national post-narrative empire of Britain. Together, I think they help explain a big part of our democratic crisis. Britain is a construct born of that empire. As post-war Decolonisation took place as Ghana, India, Nigeria and others began to break away. Those sat in the driving seat of Empire PLC needed a new story of what Britain was. Enoch Powell, the first parliamentarian to embrace neoliberalism and best known for his rivers of blood speech, is less well known for his role in this transformation. In 1950, he exclaimed that Britain without an empire is like a head without a body. But by the time he wrote his 1965 book, A Nation Not Afraid, he claimed the empire was simply an invention that had never really happened. Britain had never set out to conquer the world. Instead, it had been landed with the colonies. This is true. (coughs) No, rather... Britain was a pioneer in Ireland, where the laws, constitution, and systems of government have been unbroken for millennia. Powell and the others gave birth to the lie that the British state was born by immaculate conception. <clears throat> then growing organically into the modern day construct we now see Plucky Britain, so different from its European neighbours. If that's the story we tell ourselves, then of course the Christ of democracy makes no sense. It's like trying to square observational data of planetary orbits holding on to the belief that the Earth is at the centre of the solar system. None of it makes sense. Therefore, this forgetting is crucial, both to the maintenance of the British state, as is, the monarchy, the Union, an unwritten constitution, and even our voting system. It covers up the origins for the gross wealth inequality within our country. Why the City of London, the banks, the financial institution wield such wealth and such power over us. Why a racialised immigration narrative is so deeply embedded into our political culture. Why human rights commitments are now under attack and why the union is so fragile. Everything begins to make sense when we tell ourselves the truth of how we got here. By doing that, we can better work out what it is we need to do to tackle the crisis of democracy, which is what this conference is about. I'll end very briefly on a story. Um, when I was in the Caribbean making the, the podcast, that was one of the upsides of making the podcast, and I spoke to someone called Arlie Gill, who's the chair of the Caribbean Reparations committee in Grenada, and I said to him, Ali, how can I tell my constituents in Norwich South, many of whom never really benefited from empire, never really benefited from the wealth that was sucked into the United Kingdom, how do I tell them when they can't even afford to heat their homes, many of them are using food banks, that they're now going to have to pay reparations, and he said to me, he said, Clive, he said, they don't. And they shouldn't have to. What they need to understand is that the people who've been exploiting and robbing and killing and murdering in the Caribbean for hundreds of years are the same people who now hoard that wealth in the UK. The same corporations, the same banks, the same political class that dominates. And actually, we and your constituents and we in the Caribbean have something in common. And it's them. And I think this speaks to a new internationalism that's required because the Christ of democracy isn't just in the United Kingdom. It's global. We can see it in the institutions that no longer work, the UN. We have institutions like the IMF, the World Bank. These aren't institutions that are democratic. They're exploitative. They're extractive. And actually, until we wake up and understand that the Christ of democracy is international, we'll never be able to challenge the Christ of democracy here in the UK. Thank you very much.
0: Lewis next up we have one of my favourite people in the world I'm having dinner last night and my Liam was sat over for me and my, my wife was there too. and which my wife said Leanne Wood is just so lovely <laughs> yeah um, former leader of Plaid Cymru it's come up from, from Cardiff to speak to you and uh, I will let you do the rest thanks for being here
4: that was a lovely introduction. Thank you, Adam. Now, there's no doubt is there that democracy is in crisis, and at base, in my view, it's the Brexit vote that was actually an expression of that. I think that the debate that led to the Brexit vote in Wales and England, yes, it was about immigration and taking back control, But it was fuelled by this idea that an unelected elite was really running everything and that our elected politicians could do very little to overrule them. People couldn't understand why it was that uh, against European rules to use public procurement to support small local businesses, why structural funds that were meant to solve poverty could be spent on some projects, but not on the projects that would improve things really economically. And it was this context uh, of the previous quarter of a century where the two main political parties looked exactly the same and sounded exactly the same as well. As Tom Nen pointed out in After Britain, the New Labour Project, much like Keir Starmer's Labour Project, is about continuity. It's about not upsetting the apple cart. It's centrism. Even New Labour's creation of Scottish and Welsh devolution was about ensuring continuity. You can have an institution, you can elect its representatives, unlike the previous Scottish and Welsh offices, but you can only have so much, not a dram more, as Nairn said. From a democratic perspective, those referendum votes in 1997 were never going to be enough. There was always going to be demands for more. Now I know from listening to the two previous speakers, democracy was in crisis before the 1990s. My early teenage recollections of living through the miners' strike, I have memories of people feeling that they weren't being listened to. The futures of people where I lived in the valleys in the south of Wales just didn't matter. And of course, we'd already had the disaster of Aberfan and Trewerin. I wasn't born in the 1960s, uh, but these were very strong memories in, in people's minds. And I wasn't as politically conscious in the 1980s as I became in the 1990s. So I can only really speak about this democratic crisis from my own personal experience of it. In the 1990s, we had a discredited and dysfunctional Conservative Party, very much like we have today, and an electoral system that is designed to produce a binary outcome. It's the red ties or the blue ties. But we had promises in Scotland and Wales to create democratic institutions elected with elements of PR which gave the potential for us to go beyond that binary red tie, blue tie thing. And surely, that had to be good for democracy. Well, yes, it was to a point. But in Wales, for example, we've only ever had one party, the Labour Party, in control of the Welsh Government, albeit with different partners at different points. And our devolution settlement isn't actually that much different to the one that we were given in 1999. Yes, our Senedd has law-making powers now, and it is a reserved powers model. But the areas, the policy areas for which our CNF is responsible are broadly the same as the policy areas under the old Welsh Office. Tom Nairn said that Tony Blair's evolution project was the preservation of the world's oldest multinational state through cautious, negotiated reform controlled from the centre. In 1997, it appeared a lot more radical than it actually was, partly through hype, partly by contrast with the rigor mortis of the preceding Conservative regime. Renewal at a safe distance, he said, change around the edges. Despite this, it was sold to us as a radical project, and it did give people in both our countries a lot of hope. As time went on, it became clearer to many people that devolution was not a radical project, and it was inevitable that there would be demand for more. Within 12 years, in Wales, two-thirds of people voted to turn our powerless Welsh Assembly into a law-making parliament. And within 15 years, you in Scotland were holding your independence referendum. And this thirst for more in both of our countries still has not yet been satisfied. Here, despite a material change in circumstances since that vote took place on independence in 2014, people have been blocked from having their say again. And in Wales, we've had austerity, the COVID pandemic, coupled with the disastrous incompetence incompetence in charge of the British state, is pushing people now more towards this question of independence. And even those people who are still not convinced, many say that they would support independence for Wales if Scotland were to leave the UK. And surprisingly, there isn't a great appetite for people to remain in union just with England, uh, people understand we get a raw deal now, then it's likely that we'd get an even worse deal uh, if it was just Wales and England. In, in fact, it's likely that we could even end up ceasing to exist. That said, Wales voting for Brexit, you could argue, makes that outcome more and not less likely. And isn't it interesting that our countries voted differently on that question? And we do need to understand why that happened. There's been a lot of speculation. um, But my take on it is that the Brexit uh, uh, conversation that you had here in Scotland was a different one because of the experience and the debate that you had during the independence referendum. That democratic awakening, that real interest from people in politics, that real hope that things could be different in a radical and progressive sense had been felt by people here, and we had no similar equivalence in Wales. In Wales, Brexit was that vote for change. It was a chance to take democratic control, to get our country back, as they said, when alternative paths to change simply weren't available to us at that time. But the truth is, and it's fortunate for us in Wales, as well as you here in Scotland and people in the north of Ireland too, there are paths to change. Yes, the Brexit vote has made positive change for us much more challenging, there's no doubt about that. But independence and unification in Ireland's case does provide us with the hope that we can do something different, that we can create a politics that has people and not the preservation of the British establishment and the monarchy as the chief goal. And learning from and keeping the legacies alive of these great thinkers who have gone before us will help us get there. You in Scotland, you have Tom Nain, and I'm looking forward to learning an awful lot more about Tom in this conference today. In Wales, we also have the memory of Raymond Williams, a Welsh-European, a contemporary of Nain, a Marxist, and another great thinker who has left an immense body of work that we can build on. So I'd like to finish by saying, wouldn't it be amazing if we could hold an event similar to this in Wales, remembering and celebrating the work of Raymond Williams? And you're all invited.
0: Thank you, Leanne. Um, it was great to hear you talk about how there are genuine pathways to change. Rowan Williams famously said that to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And it was nice to see you doing some of that. So thank you very much. Our final speaker, Leslie Riddich, in, here in Scotland he's did an introduction. She's been a leading Scottish journalist for many years now. I, I was going to say as long as I can remember, but I didn't want to... <laughs> Um, She's been uh, perhaps the most energetic stalwart of um, campaigning for independence since 2014, travelling around the country and speaking to huge numbers of people, um, making her arguments and writing numerous books, which you should all go and buy. And um, Leslie, I'll let you finish.
5: Well, could I first of all just start saying, I mean, I am almost greeting sitting up here with pride. And I don't say that, you know, pride, what is that? But that Scotland can host an event like this with speakers like this. Come on! <laughs> My God, we've waited a long time. To sort of regather ourselves here with the full force of all the knowledge, all the opinions, all the the discontent, all the history, all the perspectives that come from a whole queen of different parties here in our country, in Scotland. This is absolutely marvellous. So, so well done to the organisers. Now, I just want to start (laughs) off by finding out where everybody comes from. I'm always curious, as you may know, in this room. I mean, who was, just as a matter of interest, born beyond the UK? Grant, you're welcome. Uh, Who was uh, born in Wales? Right, okay. So the Raymond William fans are obviously, you know, non-Welsh, Leanne, which is good news, right? Um, Ireland? England? Yeah. (laughs) And Scotland? Okay. And who now, irrespective of where you were born, who is Scottish? That's the crisis of Britain, in a nutshell. Because there is another state in waiting in this country, in Scotland, which has remembered a different way of operating. It's not ethnic at its best, you know, those days we fall down. But embodied in the criteria for the independence referendum was that very different outlook. If you'd lived here for three months, you're Scottish. The Brexit referendum <laughs> The Brexit referendum, you had to be British, Commonwealth, or Irish citizens to vote. And that meant people who'd spent their entire lives here from other countries no vote. And no one argued about that. The same way as no one in Scotland argued about the idea that if you'd been here for three months you were Scottish. Talk about your Irish coming into the parlour if you're Scottish. I mean, you just have to be here three months and you're in. Now, that is a great demonstration of what's driving, I think, the, the breakup of Britain now uh, because, because Scots have got a different conception of what a country can be. We're carrying it. Without even being totally aware of it, we deploy it. When we have a big moment, it just comes in. Now, you know, let's not get carried away. There's some pretty dodgy sides to us on a bad day too. But let's talk about the good days because that is the conception we're bringing forward. Um, the, The history, why we got where we are, has been so well explained by everybody that came ahead of me. But the exceptionalism is now totally falling apart for all the reasons outlined. But from my mind, as someone who spent a lot of time looking east. To the small independent countries who are on almost every measure the best performing societies on earth, we know now there are other ways to run a country and actually, when you begin to look at you know the exceptionalism to a current britain let 's look at what cannot be changed and I'm sorry, i 'm sorry because mean we shouldn 't be you know, we shouldn 't be having party political digs at this point, but you 'd have to say the new labor Government that we're expecting to have will possibly not change any of these. So first past the post, hooray, how exceptional, and how exceptional to be standing alone in Europe with Belarus, yay, Um, the House of Lords, yay, it is the only legislator in the world that's larger than its elected one. And it's the second largest in the world outside the National People's Congress of China. That's exceptional. Nice one. Um, and actually, let's not get smug. Local, what is that? Scotland has the largest local government in the world, except for Korea. So there's a template here that has to be broken and a template that I think the Scots have been questioning on a whole lot of fronts. And there's the example that sits beside us. Because, I mean, Leanne, it was quite right. In fact, it might have been Caroline who said as well, we have to think about what the alternatives might be. Well, you know, you don't have to look far. At the risk of plugging a forthcoming film on Denmark... (laughs) Denmark. Now... I don't know so much, but here's Denmark. It used to control Norway, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Iceland, Greenland, and Schleswig-Holstein. It lost them all. It lost finally in 1864 a terrible war with the very bad idea of invading Schleswig-Holstein and taking on Bismarck. I mean, in hindsight, nobody took on Bismarck. And uh, he nearly. Uh, annexed Denmark. Denmark nearly ceased to exist in 1864. Very nearly. And actually it was only the Allies who didn't want Germany, Prussia, taking up more territory that stopped Denmark being wiped from the map. That is the kind of um, existential crisis the Danes faced in the late 1800s and they got over it. They got over losing a lot of it. They focused on themselves They renovated their own thinking and country and they are now the world's most energy self-sufficient country. Uh, They have so many accolades and so much going for them. They have a GDP far higher, sometimes double, sometimes treble, that of Britain. Can you see a kind of parallel? And actually when you get beyond that, can you see that that entity, the whole of the Scandinavian countries, used to be under the control of one country? have actually learned to let go, have learned to become independent without fighting, and now cooperate really strongly in the Nordic Council, Uh, to the extent that when people talk about the EU and the great advance of Schengen, for example, there was a Nordic travel area 40 years before Schengen because it made sense. The Swedes used to drive on the same side of the road as us They switched because neighbouring countries drove on the other. It made sense. This is the kind of way you can operate when you are not having this British model of a kind of primal sovereignty that still resides in Westminster as a drawdown from the sovereign. We've never got away from that. We're still sitting with the divine right of kings embodied in a prime minister who can do what the hell he likes. So the future is there, there's many, many models for us, and as for, for Scotland in particular, we have a geopolitical occasion to die for. We are part Celt, we're part Nordic, we're part British, we're a Mongrel nation, thank God for it, and it's time for us to create a state. Thank you. <clears throat>